Amen. You may be seated. I want to invite, invite you to turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today. And we're not going to walk through the text verse by verse like we, we typically do on a Sunday morning. This will, it's a little bit different uh, message. Today we're beginning a four-part series that we're simply calling The Story. Stories are, are par- powerful. We all, we all love stories, uh, uh, whether shared over a campfire, around a dinner table with loved ones, in, in books, in movies, even puppet shows. Stories captivate. Stories grab our hearts. It's why so much of the Bible is narrative, why Jesus told so many parables. Stories draw us in. The Bible is more than a collection of stories. It is, it is the story. And we don't simply stand around as observers, but have been called to participate in this epic saga. God's story of redemption, well, it continues to unfold. And I believe that He is drawing us in to be a part of that beautiful narrative. The Bible tells us a story, God's story. And the Bible is ultimately not a collection of rules for us to follow. To be sure, it does have things we shouldn't do and things we should do as commands. But the, the, the underlying current, the main purpose is for God to tell us the story of His Son, the story of redemption. It's the story of God's purpose to glorify Himself through showering His undeserving love towards sinners like you and me. It's the story of God's plan to call out a people to bring into His new creation through the incarnate Son of God. And this morning, I want to tell you this story. It will be a story that will be familiar to most of you. What may be most fascinating about this story, that while ancient, it's a story that's still unfolding today. It's a story that begins before time was even created, but continues to be manifested to us today. But I don't begin with the very beginning, typically as... Julie Andrews reminds us that's a very good place to start. But as we just start to catch our breath after the climactic crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to follow along, Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read from a paraphrase here, so it may not line up exactly with what uh, the text is in front of you. But uh, we're going to kind of follow that for a few moments before we do jump back to the beginning. The story here picks up on the very day of Jesus' resurrection. And it tells us that that same day, two of Jesus' disciples were walking to the village of Emmaus, about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. They were deep in conversation, going over all these things that had happened in the last couple of days. In the middle of their conversation and their questions, Jesus came up and began walking along with them. The story tells us that they were not able to recognize who he was for whatever reason. And he asked, what's all this that you're talking about so intently as you walk along? You can imagine the incredulity. They just stood there, long-faced, like they had lost their best friend. And then one of them, his name was Cleopas, said, and you can hear even a touch of of agitation and anger in his voice because of the hurt and the the pain that they have gone through over the last few days. They said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who has not heard what's happened 
during the last few days? And so Jesus, I mean, this is, this is humorous. Jesus said, what's happened? I mean, it happened to him, but he draws them out with a question. What's happened? And they said the things that's happened to Jesus the Nazarene. He was a man of God, a prophet, dynamic in work and word, blessed by both God and all the people. And then our high priests and leaders betrayed him, got him sentenced to death and crucified him. We had our hopes that this was the one, the one who was about to deliver Israel. And now it's the third day since it happened. And now some of the followers of Jesus, who uh, the, the women among us, they've completely confused us. Early this morning, they were at the tomb and couldn't find his body. They came back with this story that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So some of our other friends went off to the tomb to check, and they found it empty, just as the women said. But they still didn't see Jesus. The disappointment, the, the confusion hanging in the air. And then Jesus replied to them, You're so thick-headed, so slow-hearted. Why can't you simply believe all that the prophets have said? Don't you see that these things had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into glory? This is the key verse here. And then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses, and he went on through to the prophets, pointing out everything that the scriptures, pointing out everything that the scriptures said of him. They came to the edge of the village where they were headed, and Jesus acted as if he was going on, but they pressed him, stay and have supper with us. It's nearly evening. The day is done. I mean, they had just heard Jesus, even though they still didn't know it was him, explain how all of Scripture was leading up and building up to this moment. And they were hooked. They were captivated. They wanted to eat with him and ask him more questions. So he went with them, sat down at the table, and he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And it said at that moment their eyes were opened. I don't know if it was just God supernaturally removing the blinders. Maybe as he handed them the bread, his tunic went up and they saw the nail marks in his wrists or in his hands. Perhaps it was that image of him handing out bread at the Last Supper. I don't know what it was, but the light bulbs went on, their eyes were opened, and they realized that it was Jesus who had been walking with them all that way. And just at that moment then, he disappeared. Back and forth they talked. Did not we feel, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road, as he opened the scriptures for us? Didn't our hearts burn within us as he unfolded the story, God's story, the story of redemption, the story of Jesus? And so we go back to the beginning of God's story it starts off this way, in the beginning God. What a loaded phrase. In the beginning God. We're introduced not just to the author of the book, but to the author of all things. He is the one who has existed for all eternity. The story doesn't begin in Genesis 1.1. The story began even before time was created. The three in one existing in all eternity in perfect unity, perfect love, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. 
And out of their uh, eternal love, they, they begin to create this universe. And God breathes forth and speaks into existence all things in six days. The crowning achievement of all that he has made in those six days is man and woman. He says this is good, but there is a special love that he has for man and woman because they're unique. Unlike anything else in all creation, they were formed in his image. The, the scriptures don't spell out exactly what that means, but they are created after God's likeness in some way. We, we are formed in his image. We have the ability to, to manifest many of his same character traits that we can love, and we, we have the, the ability to have emotions. God has given us the ability of reasoning, and in, in, in many ways we are like God, though not God. We were created for this unique relationship. And Adam and Eve have this special communion with God. The Bible says that they walked with Him in the cool of the garden. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. And we don't know how long that went on. God created us for relationship with Himself. And here it was being played out in the perfect place. And, and he gave them everything. He said, everything is yours to enjoy. Be fruitful and multiply. Enjoy it. Here's the catch. There's just one, one tree. You can't eat of this one tree. Everything else is yours, but stay away from this one. Well, as we know, every good story has a villain. And we're introduced to that villain in Genesis 3. We, we call him by different names. He's introduced as a serpent. He's referred to in the scriptures as the angel of light, Lucifer, Satan, a roaring lion, the devil. But no matter what you call him, it doesn't change the fact that he wants nothing more to do than to thwart God's plan, to disrupt this story, to alter it. He hates God and he hates everything about God and he hates everything about his plan. He, he wants nothing more than to destroy and so he came and whispered lies into Adam and Eve's ear that they would be better off if they went their own way, that God was holding back on them by forbidding this fruit. And so they took and they ate. They believed the enemy's lie. In all of God's good and perfect creation, all of a sudden, the, this thing that had never been known in creation up until that point came in, sin. Sin entered the world, and it splashed over everything. Imagine your toddler with a can of paint in the room just spinning and doing circles. It, it's going to get everywhere. Sin began to affect all of God's creation. All of it. And most hideously, it, it affected man and woman and their relationship to God. All of a sudden now, they were severed, that that beautiful, perfect union and fellowship that they enjoyed with God all of a sudden was severed. The Bible tells us that the penalty for this rebellion is death. Adam and Eve had, had to be removed from the garden. They no longer could enjoy that fellowship with God and their bodies were going to start to die. God pronounces curses upon man and the woman and the land 
and even the serpent. And in the midst of the, the curse upon the serpent, we see the beginnings of a plan that the Bible tells us was set in place even before Adam and Eve's rebellion. The story, the plan of redemption. And in cursing the serpent, in Genesis 3.15, God says, listen, the seed of the woman will one day crush you. You will bruise him, but he will destroy you. We know now what he was getting at. The first whispers of the Messiah, the one who would come and set all things right. The story moves on, but sin, in, its, in the way that sin does, it spread, and, and as, as, as people began to multiply, we, we get to chapter 6, and we see where God looks around all this creation, and he says, everybody's just doing their own thing. They constantly think and do wicked things. And it got so bad, God says, I'm starting over. I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. And he finds one man. We see two sides of it. It tells us that Noah was righteous, but also that Noah found grace. Noah didn't deserve to be saved, but in God's grace, he rescued Noah and his family, preserved him on this ark, and began to start anew. You see, the story was continuing to unfold, and God was continuing to pursue his people. As time goes on, we're introduced to a man named Abram, later to be known as Abraham. And God picks him out and says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm not just going to bless you, but all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Abraham doesn't have any idea how this is going to work because he doesn't have any kids and he's getting older and older and older. But somehow he says, God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use your seed, your offspring, to bless the entire world. Galatians tells us that these were more whispers of the Messiah to become, to, to come. We're told that, that this was part of God's unfolding plan of redemption. God is still pursuing his people. And he begins to make a people, the Israelites, who he's called out for his name. And, in, and as Abraham and he and his wife Sarah miraculously have a son Isaac in, in their old age, God reiterates the promise to Isaac and then to his son Jacob. I am going to do this thing. God was continuing to pursue mankind. Jacob had a son Joseph, and you know the story of Joseph in Egypt. Well, God's people got stuck there in Egypt and were put into bondage and slavery for hundreds of years as they grew in number. They, they grew in discouragement and despair, wondering if God had somehow stopped writing his story, if he had put down the pen and quill and, and stopped weaving this story of redemption. But he hadn't. He brings along a man named Moses and uses Moses in a miraculous way to deliver his people out of Egypt. I mean, as miraculous as you can imagine, culminating in the parting of the Red Sea for them to escape the Egyptians. And God speaks to Moses and he gives him his law and he says, this is how you are to relate to me. You're my people and I want to pursue you. I want to be with you. And it's through this tabernacle and through the law that, that we are going to relate. 
And the people were like, yes, we're all in. We want to be your people and we're going to do everything you said. The problem was the people didn't understand their own hearts. They didn't understand. They still had the, the hearts that they inherited from their father, Adam. And there was no way that they could measure up. There was no way that they could earn God's approval and favor. They needed something else. They needed redemption. And as God continues to write the story and continues to pursue his people, we see them rebel time and time again. And you can read about this throughout Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch and on into the early chapters of Joshua. God is pursuing his people. And right from the get-go, they turn and rebel and they still chase idols. And then they begin to follow the gods of the nations around them. And even as he brings them into the promised land and Moses passes off the scene and they have this great military leader, Joshua, things seem to be going better. But if you've read the book after Joshua, Judges, you know that the wheels just fall off again and again and again, and they go through this cycle of, of rebellion and disobedience and idolatry, and then things get really bad, and the nation comes in and, and is ruling over them, and they're like, God, we're really sorry, forgive us, and God brings along a judge to deliver them, and then they fall back right into the sin again. It's just this cycle of disobedience, repentance, deliverance, and then on and on it goes. Well, eventually they get to this point where they're like, you know, these judges are fine, but we, we want a king. We want a king to rule over us. And through the prophet Samuel, God says, I'm your king. And they say, no, 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 the nations around us have these kings that we can see with our own eyes. We want one of them. And so God says, this is not going to go well for you, but here it is. The first king is an abysmal failure. The second king ends up being the best one in all of Israelite Israel's history. Even he was messed up like we are. I mean, he sinned grievously. But there was something unique about him. In fact, God says something about this man, David, that he says about no one else in all of Scripture, that he's a man after my own heart. David had a special relationship with God that even in those moments where he turned and rebelled against God, he came with a repentant and humble heart and longed to seek the face of God. He was an example, a foreshadowing of the, the one who was to come. In fact, God makes this promise to David and says, there will be one one day who will sit on your throne and he will rule forever. We start to get another, another little whisper, another little piece of the puzzle of this, this Messiah, this, this, this one who would come the problem was that David was, I mean, your second king ever is the very pinnacle of the monarchy, and it's pretty well downhill from there. And again, these kings got into that cycle. There, there were some who were good and who followed God and sought his law and sought to be obedient, but by and large, they were rebellious and disobedient. And yet God pursued them through the prophets God sent his mouthpieces, his messengers, calling the people back, calling the kings and the leaders back to repentance. And some listened. Some paid a little bit of lip service and said, yeah, you know, that's not a bad idea. But, and then others just outright rejected and even killed God's prophets. Eventually, these warnings got more severe. And finally, people like Jeremiah said, it's over. 
God is going to wipe you out. God's going to, to he's not going to forget his promises, but it's, you're coming, they're coming, the bad guys are coming, you're going to get invaded, you're going to get dispersed, it's going to be bad. It's going to be really, really bad. But the prophets didn't just bring bad news. They brought a lot of bad news, but not just bad news. Because interspersed throughout their messages, especially Isaiah, we, we get more pieces of this Messiah. The whispers start to get a little louder. God's still writing his story of redemption. God's still pursuing his people, even in the midst of judgment. And we begin to, to hear that this Messiah was going to be a conqueror. He was going to be a king. In fact, the king of kings. He would liberate God's people from their bondage to foreign nations. This would be the king who would sit on David's throne and whose kingdom would know no end. He would heal broken hearts. He would set the captives free. This is the kind of man they needed. He would fix everything. But the prophets also spoke of something that the people, as we find out as history went on, they kind of brushed to the side because it didn't fit in the, the, the picture of their conquering military hero king. Because this Messiah was also he was going to suffer. He was, he was going to be rejected. He would be spat upon. He, he would... He would be killed. I imagine the teachers and the religious leaders found a way to, to kind of brush that aside. And so they focused on this day when this conquering king would come. But as the prophets disappeared off the scene, there's what we call 400 silent years where God was not speaking to his people. And although his voice could not be heard, his hand could be seen in his protection and preservation of his people. But I imagine that there had to be questions, just like in years past. Had God put his pen down? Had he stopped writing his story? Had God forgotten to finish his book? So many novelists have started them, and so many novels remain unfinished. Was this another one? Had God forgotten his people? Had God finally had enough and stopped pursuing? God had not stopped writing his story. In fact, he was just getting to the good part. The story picks up in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, and we hear this. Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she, as you can imagine, was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting it was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. 
He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over his house, over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary would have known her scriptures. And as she heard those words, the throne of David, kingdom without end, the alarm bells would have been going off of, in her mind. Could it be the Messiah? The Messiah is finally here, the long-awaited one, the deliverer, the one who would set us free. And she asked the natural question, how will these things be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary simply replied, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. A story that so many had wondered if God had forgotten to continue writing begins to see its fulfillment. All these promises, the buildup, and here he was. He didn't come in majestic flair, born in royal households, military family. He, come, he came with about a, as little fanfare possible, born to an unmarried teenage girl from a small town in the middle of nowhere. He had a worship service of angels to introduce him, but his first worshipers were some of the most despised people in the culture, shepherds, born in, amongst animals in the humblest of circumstances. Not so much the conquering, victorious, majestic king that the people pictured. As Jesus grew and began his ministry, he continued to upset the expectations and the, the preconceived notions of who this Messiah would be. He didn't distance himself from the commoners as kings did, but he sat and dined with sinners. He put healing hands on lepers and on prostitutes. He talked to people that no one else would dare be seen in public with. He performed miraculous signs that gave credence to the prophecies, but left so many people scratching their head because he didn't fit the mold that had been prepared for him. And so, God was pursuing his people. The Father did not send Jesus to the earth only to save his people, but to be with them. And he loved them, and he cared for them. And he gathered followers, and he taught them, and helped them come to know his Father in a way that they had never known him before. But he, he said things that confounded even his closest followers. And one of the most troubling things that he said was that he was going to die. 
And as time wore on, these references, these allusions began to be more frequent. And, and his disciples tried to stop him with such nonsense. You can't talk like that. You're here as a mighty conquering warrior, the king of kings. You're not here to die. That would kind of sort of defeat the whole purpose of being a king. Like if you're not alive to be king, you can't be king. Confuse them. But then the night came when his conversation became especially somber and serious and ominous. They began to wonder whether he was this, this whole I have to go away thing was really going to happen. And much to their horror, as guards stormed the garden where he was praying that night and dragged him away, it was true. Everything happened so quickly, the trial, the beatings, the rejection, the words of the prophets coming true, clothes being gambled for, beard being torn, word for word what the prophets said. And all of a sudden, the, the, these, these truths, these prophecies that had been pushed aside about this suffering servant began to, began to unfold before their very eyes. They began to wonder if God was once again putting his pen down, was getting the story wrong. As they laid their Savior in the tomb, questions darted around in their mind, discouragement, despair began to set in. What had we given these last years to? What were, what were our hopes put in? We thought the Messiah was here. And then... Three days later, reports of an empty tomb. And two of his followers scratching their head on a walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, trying to piece everything together, confused, probably angry, and at the same time weeping, despairing, yet feeling some rays of hope that these rumors of an empty tomb and a stranger walking alongside them and telling him this, this was the story. This was the plan from the very beginning. You were looking for a victorious king and God sent a suffering servant. You see, never at one time in all of history did God stop pursuing his people. And as God continues to write the story today, as the story continues to unfold, the same is true. God continues to pursue. And I don't know where you're at in your life, as we sang right before we started here, wanderer, come home. Maybe you're that person who has been fleeing. The King of Kings is still pursuing. And at some point, one theologian writes, in human history, though the day and hour are unknown, the return of the Lord to earth will mark the beginning of God's kingdom on earth and its transformation into the new creation when it's united with heaven. 
The new heaven and the new earth will become the theater for the glorious splendor of God's kingdom. What hymn writers call the land beyond the Jordan, what C.S. Lewis called Aslan's kingdom, is the beautiful world of God's Edenic paradise. Here humanity will partake of God's glory and life and share in His reign over renewed creation. They, we, will know God and be known by Him, reign with Him, and enjoy Him forever. The story continues to unfold today. Not that new books of the Bible are being written, but sometimes we act like all of God's good stuff happened by the time the book of Acts was done. And now we're just hanging out for Jesus to come back and get us. But here's what I believe the Bible teaches, that you and I are part of this story. We're not the heroes of it. We're not the main actors. That's Jesus. He's the hero of the story. But it doesn't change the fact that our stories are important. We matter to God because we were formed in His image and He sent His one and only Son to die for you and me. We matter. Our lives matter. Your stories matter. And God calls us to be a part of this grand narrative. I just want to ask two questions as we close. Are you a part of this story? Now, now in, in one sense, every single human being in all of history is a part of God's story. He reigns over all, every plant, every animal, every <laughs> mouse and gerbil and uh, moose and monkey. They're a part of God's story. But because we're created in His image, because we're unique, have been uniquely formed by Him, and because He sent His Son to this earth as a human being to come and die in the place of, our, of us because of our sin, because of that, He has uniquely invited men and women, children, has invited us into this story. We all, have, we all have a story. Every one of your stories, whether you believe it or not, are, are fascinating because you're a unique person, uniquely created by God. And the call of the gospel is to bring us and our story into the story of God, the story of His redemptive work. Are you a part of that story? Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? I would love if the answer is no. If that happened today, what an amazing intersection of your story and God's redemptive narrative. But lastly, if you are part of this story, you are one of the redeemed, how is His story changing your story? Because to be bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of our sins, to be given a new nature, the Holy Spirit of God, to be a new creation. It makes a difference. It means something. Everything about our lives, the way we think, what we do with our time and our resources, how we raise our family, everything is changed when we become part of God's story. My prayer is you take some time this week to think about how his story is changing or should be changing your story.
You'll see where we're going to go with this. We're going to talk some more about story in the coming weeks. But I, I encourage and challenge you. Spend some time this week thinking about God's redemptive story and ask, how is this story changing the story of your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've been captivated and uh, gripped by powerful narratives, movies, books, fairy tales that, that capture our attention. But there's no greater story than the true story of your pursuit of your people. Despite our rebellion, despite us constantly running and turning and doing our own thing, you continue to come after us in your love to redeem us and to save us. God, I pray that each and every person here knows that they matter to you, that the story of their life is precious to you. And I pray, God, that as we see the story of your redemptive work, which continues to unfold this day as we take the gospel to the ends of the earth, as we make disciples, may we see how your story changes ours. And as our story has changed, may we enter into the lives of others with the greatest story of all time, the story of a, a Savior who loved them so much that he would die in their place upon the cross, take their sins upon him, Take their penalty, their death sentence upon himself. And that he rose from the dead three days later to give victory and to defeat death and Satan. And that story, as it's been doing for thousands of years, continue to change hearts and lives in this room, in this community, in our extended families, into the ends of the earth, O oh God. Now may the God who never abandons you and never lets go of you go before you in your darkness, stand beside you in your fears, make you faithful in your temptations until Jesus comes. Amen. May God bless you this week as you serve him.